Hi, welcome to More Christ. Today I'm joined by the wonderful Dr. Wendy M. Wright. Wendy has expertise in the history of spirituality and family spirituality, spiritual direction, women and spirituality. Her academic work is focused on the Silesian spiritual tradition, founded based in Francis de Sales and Jean de Chantal. She and her husband, Roger, are the parents of three adult children and have six grandchildren. So just to begin, Wendy, can you tell us please a bit about your background and some of the key events in your life that have helped to form your character and your love for Christ? Well, at this point in my life, that's a, a long story. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, you sent the questions ahead of time, and so I gave it some thought. And I think I could say that I am one of those people, probably. I didn't grow up in a specifically religious household. I mean, in, um, and I've had wide experiences in a, kind of the whole swath of Christianity. Uh, one way or another. I am presently and have been for a long time uh, a Roman Catholic. But uh, before that, there were, and then still, even after I became a Catholic, I worked a lot with the Methodists and the Presbyterians and the, um, you know, Church of England and all kinds of different groups, uh, Mennonites and such. So I feel very comfortable with the wide swath. But in terms of my own, um, kind of background, I'd say I probably am one of those people who have the religion gene, you know, there's just something uh, about um, a sense of the world as opening out into something bigger that I, I never uh, was without, I think. Um, possibly that has to do with um, a nanny I had when I the first two years of my life. That sounds crazy, but um, my parents had a, a woman, an, an older African-American woman whose um, name was Josephine. And she took care of me a lot when I was very little. And I won't go into this in great detail, but later in my life, I began to realize that in some strange way, my sense of um, the breadth and depth of God um, probably was deeply instilled in me by this, um, I, I, you know, African-American woman named Josephine who took care of me when I was very, very little. And um, other than that, I'd say that when I was a adolescent or um, grade school uh, child, it was through music. I belonged to the Presbyterian church choirs when I was fourth, fifth, sixth grade up through high school. And uh, again, it was my own trajectory. It was not something that my parents sent me to. I simply had musical love. And what you did was with a little girl who loved to sing and loved music is you sent her to a good church choir school place. And uh, the wonderful First Presbyterian. So it really was through hymnody that I um, probably had a more, and the texts of classic hymnody, which are so rich often, um, probably instilled in me something. I, I remember um, some of the, you know, unfold, 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 ye portals everlasting, you know, in the organ blasting and, and all of those themes that, that come to you through, through hymnody and, and great church music um, have stayed with me. Um, later, it really was reading the uh, 
in graduate school when I'd wandered away from uh, any particular affiliation um, and as people do, do too. <laughs> and um, I went to graduate school in history and fell in love with the great saints of the tradition and they really piqued my interest. I felt like I found companions and people who um, they, they, they sort of saw the world the way that I longed to see the world. So it was them and then the pursuit of that through academia and through um, my own curiosity and, and study that I, I continue to do. And I, you know, I was thinking about your question. I think that throughout my life, it's been, I love to learn things and I become interested in them. And maybe that has been the primary way that I've kind of moved more deeply into the, the Christian uh, tradition, traditions and their richness and, and um, sought to live into what, what I sensed there, so. Marvelous, yeah. And um, I think you offer a very nuanced understanding of what we call spirituality now. I'm wondering then, um, what are some of the central ways that this Christian spirituality uh, contrasts, say, with other ideas we might have, like Dharmic spiritualities or more New Agey types nowadays? Does that make sense? <laughs> um, yes. I mean, that's a huge, huge question. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I, I mean, clearly... The, one of the basic uh, art forms, if I will, of any spiritual tradition is paying attention, um, paying attention deeply to um, the world around one, to one's inner life, to the, all of the remainder that one senses um, is, is, is present. And it's a different kind of paying attention than just um, a kind of critical facility. It's, um, it's listening with the, if I were, the ears and eyes of the heart um, to other people and to the created order and um, to one's own experience. Um, obviously, the Christian tradition has a, 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 a deep uh, sensibility of two things, which if I could, this, this may overly simplify the whole thing. But I think of, of Christianity basically as having two really profound uh, insights. And that, that's number one, God is with us. And you have the incarnation, you have um, the ongoing experience of incarnation and presence as in, in many of its modalities. And then the second one is love is stronger than death. And that here you have the the Easter moment, the resurrection of all that um, kind of lives in the human heart. And we, we long for that, that, and the, 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 it's not just the things we love, it's the capacity to um, vault out of oneself into some um, compassion and presence and solidarity. And that that is stronger than things that, um, and greater than anything that, um, you know, seeks to destroy that or to make that smaller. Mm -hmm. So those are, that's the way I think about, you know, obviously you have some very specific theological 
um, you know, the incarnation and the resurrection, you have the, the witness of the scriptures, you have the, the unfolding um, way that that's understood in all of the different Christian traditions, which are, are, are varied, but nevertheless, there is still that deep, um, the word and the, um, the sense of, of God with us and presence as well as love is stronger than death. So that's, you know, it, it has, there's a lot of room in the larger Christian traditions, you know, to, to, to explore those two deep insights, I think. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you for that, Wendy. And then um, are there any other persons that you'd like to tell us about that are maybe have been especially inspirational for you in your life or influential, whether that's, say, your personal life or academia or the saints or things like that? Things that are inspirational? Any persons? That, that oh, persons. Been? Yes, persons. Mm -hmm. um, yes, I have had, I've been very blessed over the course of my life. Um, earlier, particularly when I was sort of sorting my way into, into the, not only academia, but also into the, the lived Christian experience. Um, the first of those was um, Father Virgil Cordano, who was a Franciscan, um, he, actually here in Santa Barbara, where I, I returned here now. So in many ways to, to my sort of spiritual roots. Um, and he, he was the pastor at the old mission. He's a Franciscan. And if you know Franciscan theology at all, you will know that um, at the root of Franciscan theology is this notion of the enormous fecundity and generativity of God's love, which uh, is from the beginning. And one of the ways that expresses itself is that God intended this connection with creation in a special way before anything else. So that in other words, the incarnation is not a result of human sin. The result, the incarnation is the um, intention of God from the very beginning. And that, that Franciscan sense of the generosity of God and the, the joyfulness and the, um, the, the mystery of love, which just suffuses everything. I think I caught that from Father Virgil and um, he was one of the first, you know, I didn't know what a spiritual director was at that point, um, but he was the first uh, person who really mentored me into that. And then simultaneously, um, uh, Dr. Walter Capps, who was at the university, um, I did my doctorate under him, but it was more, it was also a deep um, convergence of his own discovering the contemplative tradition, my discovering the contemplative tradition and, um, you know, being mentored by him and having a, a deep friendship with him. Um, and then uh, Father Joe Power, who a little later I met, who was an oblate of St. Francis de Sales, who was a great friend and um, mentor in the Salesian spiritual tradition. And, uh, and then there, there were other people too, who, um, I can point to in the past who've been just present in themselves to a, 
a deeper questioning and a deeper longing. And I connected with that and they connected with that in me. So I, I those people have been very important. Um, yeah, my children have been very important too, very differently. Um, <laughs> Uh, they've they've taught me probably humility more than anything else as well <laughs> as, as uh, how to um, how to just have a heart that breaks open and can contain a whole bunch of stuff. Um, that's been they they've been great teachers to me too. Wonderful, thank you, Wendy. And um, now, if we may look at some of your works and see how some of these things have been. I guess um, incarnated in how you what you've written and so on. So um, you've written the rising, living the mysteries of Lent, Easter, and Pentecost, which I want to look at because we're in the season of Lent in part. So this book um, draws upon your experience as a scholar, a teacher, wife, mother, believer, and brings us back to some old truths with new ways of connecting to them. And um, you blend scripture, the spiritual classics, art, poetry, and our everyday experience highlighting the vitality and importance of these um, seasons, these fasts and feasts. So since we are in Lent, then what makes us uh, this time so important and how has it taken shape in your own life? Well, um, just to preface that a little bit, that Rising is a part of three books, one of three books that I wrote on the liturgical seasons. The first one was actually the one on uh, Advent and Christmas. And I was asked to do it by the upper room. A lot of times, you know, you, and I, I, I spent a lot of time just reading through the lectionary and then drawing on what you've mentioned, some of all of those different aspects, because I, I think of um, the Christian tradition as coming in so many different ways. In other words, it, it isn't just about I believe this thing or this idea, or, I mean, the ideas are certainly central to it. And, but there's expressed in, in so many different ways in art in music in um, the word itself, which opens out in the interpretation of the word and the way it lives over the centuries. One thing I love about the liturgical year, which is, uh, is that it gives texture to time. And this is Lent. And uh, it's the time of drawing back, of reflecting. Um, I, have, I have laughed with a couple of you know, people that I know about, here we are in the middle of a pandemic, aren't we already doing Lent? <laughs> what do we need to do new this year? Um, um, that, that it has been a time of uh, reflection and going back. It's, it, it can be for some people a time of discipline, you know, of, of paying attention to things in one's life that um, are in the way of keeping you open and, you know, your heart open. I have um, a, one dear friend who is kind of subject to depression and Lent is a time in which she avoids sad things because she knows those are triggers that are going to and so for her um that's an important discipline in lent um i have it has been a very different lent this year in terms of uh 
partly because it is already so um, sort of stripped of the ordinary ways that we interact with people and um, becoming used to that, becoming accustomed to it without becoming kind of flat. I think that's been one of the hard things for me during this time. It's been a very difficult time in the United States. It's been politically, culturally, um, you know, tumultuous and heart-wrenching. And um, uh, add to that the uh, response to the vaccine, which, or to the, the you know, COVID-19, um, which has divided people. I mean, you know, we're, we're just at, you know, at odds with one another as a, as a society. And I, I think for myself, um, keeping my, paying attention to things that allow me to not ignore all of that. You can't, I mean, that's part of the spiritual life is also, this is real, you know, this is where you live. This is your moment in time. Um, at the same time, allowing myself to breathe into it and also to find um, moments of um, beauty, it's been very important and it's taken me it's taken me longer than Lent. It's taken me through the whole last year. But now in Lent, I find myself really attentionally looking for those little things. We take a, we live near a, we're very lucky in this pandemic that we can actually walk outside. The weather is nice and we live near a big open um, 320 acre uh, kind of preserve. And so you don't have to be in contact with a lot of people, you know, and um, pay attention to the birds that show up there. Um, paying attention, um, my husband noticed a roadrunner. I don't know if you know I have roadrunners, but they're as a sort of desert thing. Nobody thought they were here, but I saw him and I took a picture of him. And anyway, um, paying attention to those small things, paying attention to the garden, to the way that the plants um, learning all of their names. I need all of the names and their sort of stories and what they need, the plants. That has been important for me this Lent. So it's an intentionality to um, the rest of one's life, whether that means giving up something, whether that means um, attending to something different, uh, whatever that is that keeps you from allowing your heart to be open, I think. Marvelous. Yeah. Thank you, Wendy. I think that moves us on nicely to my next question, actually, which is, we have already hit upon this a little bit, but what is it then that we are celebrating at Easter? And how does this transfigure and inform all of those areas of our lives, like um, some of those that we've mentioned and more? Yeah, Easter. Okay, well, uh, again, to me, um, and again, this is a, those persons who are I certainly can, as an academic, walk you through all of the nuances of the theology of, and that's important. That's an important discipline. But in term, just in terms of living it, I do think about love is stronger as death than death as being the mystery of Easter. I also think that I'm appreciative of the fact that Easter is not just a day; it's a whole season in the liturgical. It's a fifty-year, fifty-day season. 
because I always find that when Easter comes, um, even in the Roman Catholic tradition and in other more liturgically oriented traditions, you have a whole, you know, you have the Triduum, you have Holy, you know, Holy Week and Holy Thursday and Good Friday and Holy Saturday. So you're, you're working up to this, you know, event that's happening. But I, as I try to live into it, I often find myself kind of like, oh, what happened? Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, um, and so it's been important. And I, I love the readings of the first week after, um, on, the, on the common lectionary, after Easter, because they're all about the appearances, because the disciples didn't, didn't get it either, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and it's like each year, and that's what's so wonderful about the liturgical year, because each year it's never the same. You're always living into it differently and it's unfolding differently for you. Um, there's not one, one kind of cookie cutter or stock kind of response to Easter. It has to come new each year. And I love the sense of each time the disciples, you know, Thomas putting his, you know, needed to put his fingers in the side or the, or the disciples on the beach, you know, and they're going, or the ones on the road to Emmaus, like they don't even recognize him. And I feel like that's an important part of it. It's like, it's already, but not yet. And we're, you know, we're constantly discovering the mystery of God with us. The mystery of love is stronger than death. And, um, you know, and, and then Easter is a time that whole 50 days, maybe where you can open to that a little more, just a little more each year. Yeah, magnificent. And um, a lesser known one then is Pentecost, even amongst Christians, it seems. What are some of the key lessons um, that you hope to remind us of for Pentecost and why are they so vital to the life of the church? Well, people will say, I mean, that that's the birthday of the church is Pentecost, you know, when the disciples are gathered together and the, the Holy Spirit descends and, you know, um, in, enlivens them, um, that that's, that the, that is, that Pentecost is something which is ongoing. In other words, as we are, oh, you know, our lives are so sort of fragile and so partial and, and that, and, and yet there are moments when the spirit penetrates or the spirit um, speaks or the spirit allows us to move into something deeper out of ourselves. And so that, that experience of being present to the spirit, I mean, you know, spirituality in a classic understanding of spirituality in the Christian tradition is about the Holy Spirit. You know, the term is used more broadly today to talk about, not about the, you know, influence of the Holy Spirit or the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's used to talk about, um, you know, a more general and generic way that human beings um, try to live into something that is transcendent, you know, however they define that. Mm -hmm. So um, the term is not used um, as a as a Christian term in, in most parlance, but it, it is a, you know, it, it 
comes from the Christian tradition. And although it was also a pejorative term for a while, but um, it comes you know, out of the Christian tradition. And, and Pentecost really is a celebration of the mystery of the spirit, but it's also the mystery of, you know, to use the classical term, of the mystical body of Christ. You know, that it's the church, it hopefully is more than a gathering of people who happen to share a few ideas or something like that, but it is an inspirited community at its best. And it is a community that, at least the tradition tells us, um, is the ongoing mystical body of Christ, which uh, moves and acts in the world and hopefully um, responds responsibly to the promptings of the spirit. It doesn't always, and we'll just look at history, but um, at the same time, um, you know, there, there is that deep, deep reality, I think, that, that somehow persists. And Pentecost is a celebration of that. Yeah, marvelous. It's really helped me to understand too and um, reframe how I perceive the world because it seems that God has offered this unity and diversity. And this is something that I think comes across in your work, between, say, even within the church between married people and their spirituality and celibate people and their spirituality. And then um, Christians throughout the ages have different emphases and things like that, which I think you're more nuanced approach uh, helps me to understand so i'm grateful for that and um next i want to ask you about the essential spirituality handbook which uh, really provides us with a resource for understanding and practicing the christian faith so here you present the foundations of catholic spirituality in different sections mm -hmm. so to grow in um distinctly christian the spiritual life uh, uh, truly and humbly how should we approach things like prayer and attend ourselves to that <laughs> Sorry <Yeah>. for these. <laughs> no, that's like <laughs> that's a big question. These are all big questions. Um, you know, prayer is, I think, the longing of the heart to, uh, or you know, it's it's the the many many ways that we allow and practice and discipline ourselves too, to to. Um, have at the center of our lives this longing to connect with that which is um, greater than ourselves, the longing for God. You know, St. Augustine, you know, my heart is restless until it rests in you is a classic example of that. But people do that in different ways. And there are so many different ways of praying. Um, there are vocal ways of praying. There, you know, there's the Our Father, which Jesus gave us, you know, there are um, liturgical ways of praying. The whole practice of liturgy is, in fact, a, a formalized communal prayer. Even, even the Quaker um, silent meeting is a form of waiting in silence. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a prayerful um, attentiveness to the silence and waiting for the, the the prompting of the spirit in that. Um, there are embodied prayers. I think um, in many cultures, um, dance is, or certainly in all, all cultures, music is a wonderful 
uh, way of praying. Um, some of the uh, Wonderful Methodists, the Mennonites, the various Protestant communities, I mean, hymnody is a primary way of praying. Um, also visual prayer, um, icon gazing or um, embodied prayer, people going on pilgrimage, people um, praying the rosary, um, you know, the tactileness of that. Um, contemplative prayer, the use of um, simply waiting in, in silence uh, without the use of words or with something like centering prayer, which is a, you know, a practice of allowing a simple dart of love carried by a word to, you know, carry you into the unknowing and, you know, put a cloud over, you know, over, uh, in other words, creating a space for um, spaciousness for God. So I think prayer is, um, I think in the beginning, people, prayer is about bringing the disparate energies of the self into some alignment. So it's often helpful to have a kind of particular practice that allows you to do that, taking time to, you know, I have a little candle I light and then I say this particular thing or I do this with other person, you know, it, it, the, there's a, a kind of discipline to it. Eventually, and then some people are good at this from their very beginning, prayer can become something that you do all day long without being churchy about it. I mean, it's, it's just a spontaneous awareness of the presence of God and, and a response to that. But I think, I think what's important about prayer is learning to hone the heart in the direction of what the deepest longing of the heart is. And there is a practice to that and that people need to find at different times in their lives, different ways that that works and what carries them. And some people, uh, you know, kind of get stuck in one way or they're told they have to do a certain thing and that is prayer. And um, I don't think that's always very helpful. I also think that people throughout their lives will um, ways that they have prayed or they've experienced presence or God um, goes away or it, you know, different events challenge that or you grow out of it or, uh, and that, it's a constantly changing reality, I think. And there's a certain humility in that. And then there are times of, you know, whole seasons of prayer that are very um, dry and dark. And, um, you know, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful, uh, I think it has to do with this bringing, bringing the energies of the self into some sort of alignment so that you can um, continue to pay attention and to move into that deeper longing. Excellent, thank you, Wendy. I think too, something that's important that I, I was gonna ask you later on, but this I think dovetails with it is at that individual level, 
that is reflected in the society and certain emphases um, in the Christian tradition can become ossified and people think this is the only way to pray and um, yeah. oh you can only say the Jesus prayer or oh you can only say the rosary or whatever but that's not the truth <laughs> and it's demonstrably false from the historical records and everything which I think your work is very very helpful and um, bringing to light so um, does that make sense? <laughs> yeah it does absolutely. Um... Yeah, I mean, it's a funny kind of, I mean, we do have communal prayer too. And I think that's very important, um, very important, the gathered community. Um, and that's not always, doesn't always align with one's own personal way of praying, <laughs> you know, and, and yet spirituality is about, it's not just about me and me and God or um, me and my growth or something like that. It's about, you know, the human community and it's about um, us loving one another. And, and so coming together in a gathered community uh, is a very important way of praying. And it may not be, and sometimes it's deeply, profoundly moving. Um, but there are other times when you know, it's, it's just, it's the kind of thing you do because it's, it's, it's the way we share it together. Um, and a wonderful, this, this is, I was yesterday at the, uh, we go to the old mission here at Santa Barbara. And even though it's March, uh, our weather is, has been very nice. And so even in the pandemic, we can celebrate outside people bring lawn chairs there's a great big lawn and a you know portico out in front of the place and they set up a portable art altar and the sound system and it's it's uh it's <laughs> it's liturgy as you go but um people have to stay distant and wear masks and all that kind of stuff but at the same time um there we are maybe a hundred people all separated from one another in this great big um area um and yesterday, there was a young girl, um, she was my 12, 13, and she was doing her first communion with her father. She was um, uh, Latina. And um, usually the first communion in a Catholic setting is, you know, you're in the second grade and you've got your, your group of friends and you're all wearing a little white dresses and little suits and you know it's a kind of a it's a wonderful rite of passage but this young woman her father was um uh, apparently worked as the gardener at the mission and sorry speaking of the gardener anyway <laughs> um uh anyway her father apparently had really wanted her even with the pandemic and they can't have you know classes or anything like that um, and it was her first communion and she was there in a lawn chair that was covered with a white satin cover with, you know, a beautiful flowers on it. And she had this lovely dress in the, um, you know, Latino community. Um, the children just dress, you know, up for these events. And she was there and it was so, it was, there was something about having her present there. It was such a touching moment. Her father was so proud of her. I don't 
think her mother is, I, I didn't, there was no mother there. So I don't know what the situation was, but her father was so deeply and, and it was so, it was so special. And here in the middle of this insanity with the pandemic and this, you know, the, the way we're, we're all wearing masks and we're all separated from one another and everything. And yet right in the middle of that was this touching, you know, presentation of this one young girl who was being having her first communion and everybody waited and she got to go up first and her father and her brother went up with her and, um, you know, and we're all separated and the, everybody has their hands washed and everything like that. But there was something about the power of that, um, that life moment and the celebration of it, which was a deeply sacred thing for this family and for the whole community in the middle of this, you know, craziness. And, and it, it just, I, I, you know, it was very beautiful. Um, and there's something about the gathered community. I don't know these people. I probably will, you know, I mean, I, I never have a chance to go, you know, I don't know anything about it, but there was something about being present to that and something about um, welcoming her into this community that was much more powerful than a lot of things I do by myself, so. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. I've um, experienced some of those things too. Thank God, those maybe sacramental breakthroughs. And um, in London, in this huge cos cosmopolis, I worked in a small Catholic school, and there were many Filipino uh, families there, and they were so devoted and devotional. And um, I think, unfortunately, that's something that many of us have lost, even in Ireland, which is a very traditionally Catholic country. They had, we, they had these lovely May processions outside the school, and it was so yeah. full of life and vitality. It was amazing to watch and partake in as much as possible. So um, yeah. I think I can understand what you're saying there. <laughs> so um, <laughs> another thing I want to ask you about is there's a lot of talk about Christian values and stuff, but I think that you and others have talked about virtues, and I think that's much more helpful Um approach probably than talk about values. So I want to ask you, what's the importance of the virtues and how can we live those out in Christ distinctly? Yeah, well, I mean, faith, hope and love are the great, the great ones. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm also, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, Francis de Sales, who is the, and the Salesian tradition, which I have worked on, um, talks about the little relational virtues um, gentleness, humility, um, simplicity, patience, cordiality, um, as extremely important. Um, so th the first thing I want to say is a virtue is something that you practice. It's a habit. I mean, that's Thomas Aquinas, right? You know, from the get go. And, um, so you, a virtue is not a kind of character trait that you are born with. We were all born with personal character traits, things that we have to, you know, work against and things we have to encourage. <laughs> um, but uh, a virtue, you know, to practice, what does it mean to practice love in the context of, you know, that's not a simple question. It is not a simple question. Um, oh yeah, I can have generic love for you know people in the future, 
or out, you know, out there, oh yes, I, I, I love all humanity or something like that. But to actually love the people in your life and love the context in which, you know, in the, in the people in the context you find yourself, it, it's a very creative process. Um, and what is faith? I don't think, I don't, I think of faith more as an orientation, not as a set of, um, you know, kind of propositional. It's not propositional faith. It's an openness to uh, the, the transcendent, to the, you know, the, the larger life. And, and, and hope is, oh man, hope. It's not optimism. It's something else again. Um, it is a deep, it, it comes down to trust, I think, but it's not easy. Hope is not easy to practice trusting and trusting. Um, and life throws lots of things at you and losses and difficulties and tragedies. And um, I think that faith, hope, and love are, are practices that allow you to plumb more deeply and to kind of dig into um, that which is beyond what you had assumed. You know, you become accustomed to knowing God in a certain way, and these are the people in your life, and this is what you did, and then all of a sudden everything is torn apart, and um, how do you, how do you, it's, you can't identify God with or you can identify hope or faith or love with a particular set um, situation. It, it needs to grow. I mean, it's capacity for um, expanding the heart, having the heart break and letting the heart be filled with other things. Um, I, I have particularly been helped by Francis de Sales's notion of those little rela relational virtues that, um, and I'm not always very good at that, but, you know, gentleness with oneself, gentleness with one another, patience, humility, you know, humility is not, oh, I'm the worst thing in the world. Humility is a, a capacity to know the gift that we are given and the promises to which we're called, held together in tension with, all of the ways that we know ourselves to be partial and, um, you know, myopic and um, inattentive and self-centered and all of that sort of stuff. Both of those are true. And humility is, is holding those together and being able to um, love deeper, and know that God loves you deeper than your own expectations for yourself and your own failings and your own this, that, and the other thing. Um, years ago, Father Virgil Cordano, the thing that really, uh, I mentioned him, he's a wonderful Franciscan. Um, I listened to a little tape that he had done. It was a little homily. Um, on one of the, is it? one of those John, uh, not, not in John, the Gospel of John, but one of the, I forget where the, the text is, but he translated this way, God is greater than your own condemning heart. And I remember being just knocked off my socks with that one. 
And I have to keep content, continuing to, to move into that. And I think there's a practice of that, uh, of, you know, of forgiving oneself, knowing one is forgiven, and yet you also aspire to love more deeply, to care more intentionally, to um, kind of come out of yourself and your own self-preoccupation. Um, other people help me do that. I, I help you do that. That's one of the things about the pandemic that I found the most, it, it, the solitude is, I don't mind solitude, but you can get kind of squirrely about yourself too. You can kind of, you know, <laughs> you don't have people, uh, you know, pulling you out of yourself in the, in the way that they often do to remind you of kind of how small you are and, um, and I, 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 I think that's been a challenge in the pandemic is a little too much self-preoccupation, you know, which is different than, you know, really creative solitude. Yeah, marvelous. And I think too that uh, unfortunately our expressive individualism, our dominant culture seems to encourage that stultified personality and says that's who you are. Whereas I think the first life shows that's not all you're made for you're made for so much more and as you say it's this journey that you have to go on and attend to so I'm very grateful again that you're helping us to discern that which actually brings me to the next thing about okay. discernment discernment <laughs> yeah. um oh how can we understand and practice discernment especially in this time where we don't believe what's the news is telling us we've got the social media frenzies and um what are some of the methods and metrics that we we can use for Christian discernment as opposed to these other secular. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, that's a huge one because there are a, lot of, a lot of specific practices yeah. of discernment about making decisions or sorting through uh, things. I would say this again, sort of stepping back to the big picture. Um, any idea or kind of practice or um, lifestyle or whatever that you're going, you're trying to sort through. If it's long-term effects allow you to grow in faith and hope and love, that's a pretty good sign. Now, now that's not necessarily immediate because sometimes, you know, there's, tension around things and there's confusion and all that sort of stuff. Um, but long term, if, if, if something reeks, if I could say this, of hatred, of fear, of um, a kind of really detrimental judgment, um, I would, you know, I would stand back and um, wait on anything like that. I would not attach myself to things that are um, fueled by uh, hate or fear. Um, and, and there's a lot of that going around with a lot of Christian labels on it. Yeah. So That makes yeah. sense. I think, um, yeah, what, how I um, understand it is what you're what you say at the individual level also happens at the societal level with say ideology 
which mm-hmm. um, has all those negative characteristics. And then you do have to sort of sit back and ask, is this the work of the spirit that is actually active in the world? Or is this the spirit of the age or what is it? So it's, it's obviously difficult to do, but. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, there are, there are lots of, I mean, Ignatius is very good on discernment, Ignatius of Loyola. And, you know, for he has, for people who have been walking for a while in the Christian life, he, he pays attention to the um, affect of, you know, the decisions you make or, or the paths you take. Um, that if things are, and again, this is, this is not necessarily if you're kind of just starting on the journey, you're starting on the journey, Ignatius would say that sometimes the, um, the kind of spirit of the world, the spirit of Satan or something is very attractive and kind of, you know, tem- tempting and seductive, um, uh, you know, and then the, the spirit often seems, the Holy Spirit often seems kind of um, a little too hard and a little too yeah. harsh, and, you know, whatever. But as you move through and you know and you begin to grow and mature those kind of affects tend to change around this is oversimplified um and that something that is of god tends then to lead toward peace and and more uh, something that's more consoling filled with love filled with hope and those things that are um you know to use the language of you know an evil spirit or a spirit of the world or whatever you want, um, those tend to be uh, like water on a rock, real, you know, um, confusing, um, you know, anxiety producing. Now, again, that's waiting on these things for quite a while. You can't, it's not an immediate kind of like, ooh, the immediate, but um, that in the long run, again, it's faith, hope, and love in the sense of growing in, in, in things and, and doesn't mean that decisions you make aren't gonna be hard and they might require a lot of, um, you know, self-emptying, suffering um, of various kinds, um, but that in the long run, what you're talking about is a growth in love and faith and hope. So. Marvelous. I think something to, um, that comes across in your work in St. Francis de Sales and stuff is this, misinterpretation that many people have even so-called spiritual people that um, will say view humility in the sense that you said it's not it's not this self-loathing or anything that's a misunderstanding i think we see this too about things like satisfaction and you help us to correct that um i guess gnostic or something like that tendency what is the place and importance of um say satisfaction in living a genuine christian uh, christian life then um are you talking about that in a theological sense I guess the, the sort of as it manifests itself with them undermining the body or even things like marriage and human sexuality and things like that were um, the passions. I think you've corrected that there are ideas from uh, how we understand eros and agape. Some people will talk about the Christian love is just agape, these other things. But oh, right. uh, you, okay. in your work, you show that eros and all these things partake in the uh, like life of agape. I get what you're coming from. Um, Yes, I would say that, and again, I'm going to be very um, kind of Franciscan Ignatian Salesian about this, but that 
all of the created order is created by and sustained by God, and that everything in it and all our capacities in it are, are given to us in order to more fully love and appreciate the gifts that we have and to give back. So, you know, um, there was a long period in the church when, um, you know, celibacy and um, not marriage, comes from when you're awaiting the, for the eschaton, you know, the, the final, the final times. And, you know, so don't get married now. This is not what you're going to do. And then there was a tendency to see, um, you know, a, a, a set aside life as the only life, as a true spiritual life and other lives. Well, you know, maybe, maybe you could, you know, have the sacraments and not die and, you know, be sent to hell or something like that. But, um, the, the idea that somehow all of our capacities, our capacities to love our children, to love our spouses, to be in deep relationship with um, the created order, to, um, to uh, create beautiful things that give uh, glory to God and not, not in a kind of a, necessarily in a, canned kind of way you know it doesn't have to look like that because god only looks like that but just our our capacities as human beings which are give to us given to us to create a better world to create love for one another to create beauty to create um fulsomeness i mean that all is um part of the spiritual life and uh, the appreciation of that and yet also the discipline of that in other words, it's not there just for our own, you know, kind of um, self self enjoyment or our kind of um, uh, I don't know what to, I mean. One can take great pleasure in things and and delight in things, and one should. But um, there's a way in which it becomes self absorbing and and kind of addictive too. So that there needs to be an awareness of holding these things lightly and um, tenderly too, and, and, and holding them in a way that we don't be, they don't possess us and we don't possess them. Yeah, marvelous. And um, I think this comes across in a few of your books, I would say about family life. So seasons of family's life, cultivating the contemplative spirit at home and sacred dwelling, discovering and living your family spirituality. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about those and how, or what are some of the ways that um, family life can serve as a context for nurturing, say, contemplative practices in the home and so forth? Yeah. Well, I guess I think of contemplation not necessarily as um, only you know, being apart and in silence, <laughs> which is a kind of classic way of, of yeah. thinking about it. not that silence and solitude are not necessarily, they're very important arenas of um, self-awareness, of awareness of the presence of God. And I think everyone needs times where they, where, where they cultivate that. Um, at the same time, most of our lives are not, you know, especially if you have young children, oh my, you know, <laughs> it's, it's 
it's full of activity, it's full of anxiety, it's full of you know caretaking, it's full of having to earn a living, it's full of um, worried about you know the roof is leaking, it's full of you know making sure that you know a child is sick and going to get the right you know <laughs> it's full of all these anxieties and these um, care caretaking activities, and yet and yet and yet. In a strange way, those are the things that crack you open the most. Um, it's one thing to go away in your solitude and silence and ah, take a deep breath and say, ah, yes, here I am, God. Um, it's another thing to, to have your, um, your expectations or, you know, I mean, before I had children, I always thought of myself as a patient person. <laughs> and then I discovered that you know, that was a very kind of limited sort of patience. And I had to learn that. I had to learn how to step back. I had to learn to care more. I had to learn. I also had to learn sometimes to step in and take, um, take you know, charge of things that um, were hard for me and or to challenge or to... Um, and to let go. I mean, the whole process is learning to have your heart broken open and filled with these other people, and then gradually to let them go and become themselves. And I mean, if that isn't a heart stretch, I don't know what is. And uh, I think it teaches you a lot about individual people and how different they are and how, how you need to be different for different people. Um, and how what you need to bring to the table for for other people they're all so different and um, yeah it's a constant learning it's a constant learning and learning how to love I guess so yeah, yeah. wonderful I think um, that shows again the nuance with the um, differences in love so those distinctions aren't abolished. And um, that's something that I have a problem with in terms of some theological, uh, I guess it's complicated, but the way people talk about, um, say family and marital life is natural versus the supernatural spiritual life and things like that. I find that dreadfully mistaken. I think your work has taken us beyond, say what John Paul II was talking about. I talked about this with an Eastern Catholic, um, Dr. Michael Martin too. and how we can focus on the actual eschatological significance of these things. And um, I think it comes across in your work too, this cruciform quality of how we live and become more human in Christ, precisely how we do make those sacrifices for our family members, as you're kind of suggesting there, which I think is wonderful. So I think that offers us hope. And um, I wanted to ask you about, did, what, are there other signs that you see within the church and um, how it's growing to appreciate and integrate these insights more. Well, you said that very well, I have to say. But <laughs> <laughs> um, not the question, the, the comment beforehand. Um, well, you know, I mean, the church is so interestingly um, both universal and local. And I find a great deal of hope with uh, in the Roman Catholic Church with Pope Francis. I find him extremely um, uh, expansive in his view. I know there are plenty of people who 
do not like Pope Francis, um, who um, preferred a much more um, codified, uh, clearly defined, um, here are the boundaries, um, this is how you do it, kind of um, Catholic world. Uh, it's not that he's tossing the, the disciplines or the rules, if you will, out. He's, he's, he's much more pastoral in what, in what he um, approaches it. And I suppose that has been my um, kind of approach too. I mean, I, you know, you got to live this thing and, you know, for all the gorgeous theology and the beautiful um, spiritual wisdom and the, um, you know, the kind of rubrics that, that are, you know, originally meant to help form you, uh, living those, um, it has to be, it has to be creative, it has to be real, it has to, it has to, um, again, lead to faith, hope, and love, not only for you, because you're doing it right, but to other people too. And so I think I find Pope Francis very hopeful in way. Um, you know, in the United States, the church is as divided as the rest of the country. So, um, you know, there are issues that um, divide. There are ways that people, um, you know, are, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult time. So I'm, I guess I'm hoping <laughs> that, you know, sometimes difficult, contentious times lead to new disease and lead to new ways of, um, you know, being with one another. Uh, what, uh, one thing I do find hopeful because I'm back at a Franciscan parish and um, uh, the, in the, like the, by the 16th century, the Dominican, the uh, Augustinian and the Franciscan theological worlds, were, those are the, the three great theological traditions which were taught everywhere. And that really diminished that basically you have only, you know, by the time that you get to the beginning of the 19th, 20th century, you have basically Thomistic theology, which is taught, which is, you know, this is it, this is Catholic. And that's been a great, and, and the Augustinian is there too, although I say the Protestant world has taken the Augustinian thing, you know, to another, uh, to a, a, you know, a, a different place. Um, but I have been heartened by feeling that the uh, retrieval of the uh, Franciscan theological tradition, and I'm talking on the on the level of, of you know theological teaching and knowledge and stuff, is is becoming revived and more brought to the surface, both academically and more popularly. I think of the Jesuit tradition has, uh, you know, the Jesuits worldwide, I think are really moving on social justice stuff. And I find that very, very heartening because again, it's not just about, you know, us being perfect and getting saved or something. It's, it's about the created order and about um, bringing the, the, the goodness of the created order to all persons and allowing them to flourish. That's what God intends, is for the flourishing of all humanity together. So I find that very helpful too. Yeah. And, and there are other 
examples of that, many other orders and groups and things like that. But. Yeah, marvelous. I think um, whenever I reverted to the Christian faith too, I discovered that with mainly Eastern Orthodox theology, but I think that's there in the Eastern Catholic tradition, mm-hmm. but people just haven't attended to it. And um, that yes. cosmic, tra- the transfiguration of everything that's uh, laid out for us. And N.T. And Wright amongst the Anglicans too is wonderful. I spoke with him and he's um, rediscovering that cosmic renewal that Christ promises and everything, which is great. So um, moving on to the sacred dwelling, and if we can ask you about that, and um, the different chapters or lessons and gaining an awareness of the joy and offer in our experiences, families and letting the sacred be more present in our often frantically paced lives. So how may we begin to pay attention to those silences or still quiet voices that do underlie our lives, these even outside of um, the monastic, monastic order or things like that? Yeah. Um, well, I, I think, again, um, times of birth, times of death, times of all those kind of liminal spaces in family life um, open us up. I I guess I used to go when my children were very little, you know, they're sleeping in their room and you just go in and you you kind of just be there. Um, And that's, you can allow yourself to just move into the sense of wonder of it and the astonishment of it in a way that you can't when they're screaming and throwing things <laughs> and you're trying to clean up after dinner. And, um, and that there, there are those moments I have found tending to, um, uh, we had the opportunity, you know, it's years now, but to attend to Roger's mother as she was at the end of her life, as well as my mother um, at the end of their lives. Um, you know, to be much more attentive to that, to be present to that, to be aware of the, um, you know, when you, especially with my mother, I mean, sitting, waiting for uh, somebody is, you know, in a hospital room or, um, and, and it's, it's not as easy when you're, you know, desperately hoping somebody's going to get better. But there's also an opening, even when someone dies or there's great sickness, um, to 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 realize how much this matters and how much uh, the person has meant, and to begin to try to pay attention to that more frequently. You know what I mean? That I think about my own mother. She's been gone for 11 years now, but I often uh, find myself saying, I wish I could call her and say hello, you know? And that brings me to the, to the, not only the memory of her making that live, but also how I need to, to, to also practice that with my husband, you know, and practice that with my children when I am able to phone them and talk to listen to them, to practice that with, I do quite a bit of spiritual direction here. And uh, right now I'm doing it all virtually, but um, still, um, you know, I started with all these people in faith, person to person. And to bring that and to, to help them to be 
aware and to sort of savor um, those moments that they need to hold in their heart and remember them. And that, that becomes a habit of paying attention that way. Um, and, and, you know, then finding them in your own experience is important. Marvelous. <clears throat> so can we move on to Heart Speaks to Heart now and um, the Silesian tradition? <laughs> so um, you introduce us to this spiritual sensibility, which has influenced Christians across the centuries. What is the Silesian tradition within spirituality and how can it inspire us today? Yeah, well, it's a larger tradition that um, has its roots in uh, St. Francis de Sales and St. Jane de Chantal, who lived at the beginning, end of the 16th, beginning of the 17th century. Um, Francis de Sales is the author of a book called Introduction to the Devout Life and also a great book called Treatise on the Love of God. Um, and Jane and he are the founders of the Order of the Visitation of Holy Mary, which was before the French Revolution, a very large um, community or widespread community in France. Um, it's, it's, it's still alive, but it's not as widespread. Um, then in the 19th century, there were a number of communities that were founded inspired by the teaching of Francis de Sales. And uh, the Salesians of Don Bosco and that whole family, the um, Daughters of Mary, Help of Christians, the Salesian cooperators, there's a whole cluster of those. The Oblates of St. Francis de Sales, the Oblate Sisters of St. Francis de Sales, the Daughters of St. Francis de Sales, and a, a, another group of cognate communities. And they all tried to carry this particular spirituality in very different ways, different, um, you know, foci with what they do with it, but it all has to do with quality of heart. Um, Francis de Sales had this, he was also very influenced by the Franciscans, but he was like a, uh, an incredible, um, you know, polymath. He, he read the, you know, he lived at the time of, when the Renaissance had transformed uh, learning, he was taught by the Jesuits. He read the patristic authors. He was schooled in scripture. He knew the medieval theologians. He, you know, he knew Renaissance art and poetry. And I mean, he was uh, uh, extraordinarily broad in his approach to things. But he drew from the tradition and framed his uh, a particular synthesis of the tradition in, in the way of what he called the world of hearts. So he had this, he used the metaphor of the heart to describe the heart of God, which is, um, you know, like a fountain, like a womb, which is this overflowing love, which poured out into creation and created the world. And in the, in the created in itself, the point that is most mirrors, if I will, the heart of God, which is most in the image and likeness of God, is the human heart. And the human heart for Francis is made to beat in rhythm with the heart of God. It is, that's how it's created to be. And, 
you know, it's created to love expansively this way. It's created to be generative. It's created to be, uh, you know, to, 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 to joy and to bring the beautiful and the good into the, into, into fruition. And, but obviously if you pay any attention, um, the human heart is arrhythmic, basically. It, it doesn't beat in rhythm. And, and so for him, the heart that um, is both fully divine and fully human is the heart of Jesus. And that it beats perfectly with the heart of God. And that what we need to do is live Jesus, is to have our hearts transformed into the heart of Christ. And you do that through the practice of those little virtues, those little relational virtues I talked about, which as Francis would say, you know, not everybody is called to great courage or great heroism or great, great virtues, but we're all called to practice the little virtues and they're all relational. In other words, they have to do with gentleness, patience, humility, cordiality. Basically, if you stop to think about it, for him, that is loving your neighbor as you love yourself, you know, treating other people as you would like to be treated. And it's not just being nice. It's a really radical kind of thing. It's very hidden kind of and, you know, interior, but it is, it is profoundly radical. And to practice that and to bring that into being is, is what it means to have an exchange of hearts, you know, if, you know, or to work on exchanging the heart of the heart with Christ, of uh, our hearts for the heart of Jesus. Because for him, when he read scripture, he read that wonderful passage in Matthew 11, uh, 28, 30, uh, which we usually, that whole thing usually gets preached about, take my yoke upon your shoulder, you know, my burden is easy, that kind of thing. But for him, it read this way, come to me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. So for him, the revelation of the heart of God is gentleness and humility. That is how God is. That's how God deals with us. That's the way God loves us and loves creation. And that's how we learn, come to me and learn from me for I'm gentle and humble of heart. It's, you know, so the heart of Christ is the revelation of the nature of the divine, which is, you know, for Francis de Sales, again, it's this extraordinary, um, you know, love story between, um, God and the created order, um, but from the beginning. And again, he was Scotist, he was Franciscan in his thinking about Jesus came not because we messed it up, because that gives too much um, you know, emphasis on we then control God from that point of view, but God, came, God is intended to be in union with the created order. And Jesus's incarnation and then the death and then the resurrection this you know breaking the bonds of death um is god's way of 
moving into our arrhythmic hearts over, you know, the, we, we just, we don't, we get them all wrong. You know, we get, it's all self, self kind of um, self-protective and fearful and, um, you know, power hungry and all the things that, you know, human hearts are prone to do when they're left askew and um, when they're left with human sin. And, and for him, it's that deep quality of heart of gentleness and humility, which is not with people, it's not just being nice. It is a deep and profound respect, a kind of nonviolent respect for um, the dignity of every person and of, for oneself, really if to put it in more co uh, contemporary terms. Yep, amen to all that. Thank you, Wendy. And yep. um, I think that's really evident in the story of Mary. And I want to ask you about Mary, if I may. Oh, so, <laughs> so Mary and the Catholic imagina imagination, Le Point Vierge and the Lady of Angels in her city. Am I pronouncing that right? Oh, Vierge <laughs> with French. Is that French? I'm assuming it's French. Yeah. <laughs> French is leaving a lot to be desired. So um, in that book and lecture, you helpfully reflect upon the nature of the Catholic imagi imagination as it's viewed through the figure of Mary mm -hmm. and suggests that she might be considered the, the global Catholic Church's Point Vierge. So I want to ask you what that means and what's significant about this. Yes, well, the, I started uh, years ago um, coming back to Los Angeles, which is my home city. And Los Angeles is, um, in terms of its Catholic population, is the most diverse Catholic city in the world, a diocese in the world. Um, it has everything in it. It has the whole a microcosm of the entire global Catholic church. And um, I've had a long kind of love affair with Mary and a number of years ago, I decided I took a sabbatical and started a project of going and trying to find out kind of who Mary is in LA. And I, I visited all the different churches and communities, the Filipinos, the Vietnamese, the various, you know, Central American, Guatemala, and, you know, Mexican, um, you know, Irish, Polish, you know, it went on and on all the immigrant communities that still had, um, you know, uh, a legacy in Los Angeles and, or a living presence in Los Angeles and um, did this, you know, just paid attention to how people um, love her. And they love her in different ways, but they all, they, they, she brings everyone together. And eventually after I did all this research, I, I came to think of her as exemplifying the, the strange and wonderful kind of paradoxes of the Catholic imagination. Um, it's this global phenomenon with this strong sense of sacramentality. In other words, you have this sense of, um, the created order opens out into something else. You know, it's, it's not, it doesn't stop there. It's not just something that, you know, you can perceive in and of itself. It has this quality of the invisible is accessed through the visible. 
that that more that remainder so it's a profoundly sacramental imagination that exists in the catholic church it's also um, an imagination that holds together the tensions between the universal and the particular so the catholic thing is both global and it it wants to have um you know not only in terms of its politics or its you know its identity but it also has a strong sense of the importance of universal uh values and universal um you know reality and yet it also has a very strong sense of the particular you know the little things and um you know the marginalized and those who are left out and those who are not paid attention to and you know so you have this strange you know kind of paradox between the universal and the particular both of which are absolutely important in the catholic imagination um some of the other you know i i, I explored that in a variety of different ways um and i find all of those things strangely held together in the person of mary in the way that people you know she allows for a each community and each group to understand their kind of ultimacy in their particular way so she dresses like them and she speaks like them and she speaks to them and 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 yet she also opens out it as something very very um cosmic and important in the in in a you know she she gives access now i'm not saying that you worship mary that's a you know a no no theologically but she does give access in people's experience to um a larger a larger world where um even an eschatological world where you know it's the longing of the heart and i think i think for instance of um here in in southern california on uh december 12th which is the feast of our lady of guadalupe um the city is i mean all of southern california is a wash in flowers um people flowers are all guadalupe and first thing in the morning all over i mean hundreds of mariachi bands are gathered to celebrate las mañanitas which is the waking the virgin basically waking her and they singing these songs to her you know five o'clock in the morning and everyone is there in their own spanish and and the thing about it is that it's not like a folk custom it's it is what you what you experience in especially in parts of southern california where the um the populations that are deeply connected to guadalupe um are are often the most marginalized populations they're immigrant populations they're people who are living uh, kind of really on the you know the there during this pandemic there are all the essential workers who have to go to work cuz they're cleaning the houses and they're and they're cleaning the rest you know places and they're they're you know in the hospitals doing the menial work and stuff like that anyway but when you listen to those songs 
that wake the Virgin on her birthday? It is, they are, they are a vision of all that is beautiful, all that is good and all that belongs to people in the, the deepest sense of who they are. That this is their, this is their virgin. This is their, um, she belongs to them and she belongs because um, she opens out into something that is so, so much at the heart of what it is to be truly human, I think. So anyway, so this universal particular, um, she carries that and she also, you know, even though each particular group has their own virgin, in some way, she's also recognized as, you know, they're all her, you know, <laughs> I don't know, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's kind of wonderful that way. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. I think, them, but they all, they all kind of function. Um, and she, she exists in the Catholic world in a space in the human heart that is um, deeply hopeful and deeply um, longing for the fullness of what it, what, you know, what we're meant to be. Yeah, that's brilliant. I think um, it reminded me reading that about um, G.K. Chesterton and this um, focus on paradox and thinking beyond merely kind of cognitive, um, what we perceive to be rationality and um, yeah. the idea even of representational art, that art has to be specific, to, it has to mark every detail the way it was historic and all what you show. And I think the tradition shows that that's not the only purpose of art. And you see these wonderful expressions of Mary and Jesus and Ethiopia, the Tewahedo church is different from the the Guadalupe traditions in Mexico and America and places like that, but they all kind of meet. That's beautiful. <laughs> I think it's important. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also the high high and low art distinction that tends to be made. Yeah. It all comes together. I, you know, I I grew up in a, you know, privileged, well-educated kind of context and, you know, with fine art and art museums and history and stuff like that. But I've learned to appreciate the power of uh, devotional art that um, is by the sort of standards of high art, not, um, you know, not great art, if you want to put it that way. But I've come to understand the power and the beauty that it expresses to people and how people's, um, you know, so, so she also bridges that gap between high and low and, um, you know, privileged and excluded and you know all those kind of gaps yeah i think um robert alter talks about that too <laughs> as it pertains to literature and how a lot of our modern kind of secularist theories try to reduce these things and um suggest say the 19th century novel was the byproduct of the bourgeois society and all but in fact if you actually look at it the novels say dostoevsky people like that they completely overturned the say bourgeois assumptions that people had and it shows that art has much more uh, power and spiritual vitality than say a crude materialist reading would suggest and i think that comes across to what you're suggesting yeah that's nicely said i want to ask you about then um again how this sort of incarnates itself so in the lady of the angels and her city you recount some visitations to your hometowns many marian churches and shrines I want to ask you why then, um, in line with what you're saying, is art so vital 
to the life of the church and important for us to attend to, especially, I guess, when now we live in a dominant, um, I would suggest, I don't know, I might be wrong, but utilitarian culture and things are focused about how use, useful buildings are and things like that, whereas a lot of the more um, beautiful buildings have lasted, I think, in part because we focused on um, more beauty and not just on its functionality. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, I think um, truth, beauty, and goodness uh, are the, <laughs> are the, you know, classically are the qualities of the infinite, you know, of the, um, and to ignore all of, one of those to, to just say, oh, it's all about truth, you know, propositional truth, or it's all about, um, you know, it, it is about goodness, yes, but it is also about beauty and the capacity of the human um, spirit to move into uh, the more, the, the remainder, if you will, through the beautiful. And people do that in different ways, you know, there are different styles of beauty and 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 stuff but beauty is important and that's one of the reasons liturgy is important too and you know high low liturgy whatever i mean it, i don't want to make a judgment about anything because different kinds of liturgy work for different people but creating a space and creating um, a, a process and creating buildings and creating pieces of art and and stuff where, or retreat centers, or, um, you know, labyrinth environments, and places where you kind of get out of the utilitarian um, mindset, and, and you're transported into something else, or you're allowed access into it. I think that's very important. Um, and it is about beauty. It is about beauty. And qualities, yeah. Yeah, marvelous. Thank you, Wendy. I want to ask you then, uh, in line with that, what are some of your favorite um, places around Los Angeles or ones that you think are particularly important that you have written about? Well, I'm a, I really, um, I know that there are people in Los Angeles who don't like the new cathedral. <laughs> there are some people who um, have felt that the old St. Vivianas down in LA, which had to be um, done away with because of earthquake questions. It was not a, a stable building. Um, or people who, who really identify um, the Catholic thing with a more Gothic architecture, um, you know, and expect that's what a church looks like. <laughs> At the same time, I, the LA's cathedral, on the outside, it, it's, it's kind of, oh, well, okay, you know, it's, it's a, there's a, a big um, kind of patio area that takes you into it. And it's not that, it's not in a typical church shape, but once you orient toward the entrance to the church, there's this wonderful, great bronze doorways um, with an Our Lady of the Angels above it. And, um, all of the aspects of the church were designed specifically for the to express that particularity of Los Angeles. So Our Lady, the 
wonderful statue that's above the wall is was created to be a non-identifiably mixed race young woman, which is LA. I mean, LA is just has every single population in it that you can possibly imagine. And that is the Catholic Church of LA too, is all those different uh, persons. And so she she could be all of them. And she's there, you know, with her arms outstretched, very simple. Her hair is pulled back in a little braid in the back of, you know, back of it. And behind her, there's an opening and at different parts of the day, the sun comes through and creates a, a nimbus, you know, a, a, a halo behind her through just the sun coming at the different times of day. Within the church, I mean, I, I don't want to give you a whole church tour here, but I think it's an amazing building in that one of the things that's the most famous about it, you go into the entrance here and you're just in side chapels and then you turn around and you, you know, completely and you enter the church itself and the church, um, the, the sanctuary itself, and it's it moves downward slightly. In other words, everything moves your attention and actually physically moves you down toward the great part that is, um, you know, the, where the altar is going to be. But it also allows, it doesn't separate in the same way that a classic thing does. It, it invites everybody and then, then there are side um, uh, peer, you know, tiers up there where other people sit. Along the side of the main sanctuary are these amazing tapestries which were um, painted originally and then done in, I believe in the Netherlands or Belgium somewhere um, that by a you know, tapestry making place. Uh, and there are all the saints and they are all processing down toward, they're more than life-size, they're bigger than life-size, these tapestries. And they're all moving toward the altar like you are as well. And the faces of the saints, they have the names on them. So there's a Francis de Sales and there's a, you know, St. Bernard and there's an Augustine and they're like that. But the faces are done with directly from people in Los Angeles. So the artist has the faces of the people of Los Angeles in, you know, in the garb of these other saints. And so, and then in the front of it, there's this extraordinary, um, I don't know if it's a painting or a mosaic or something behind the altar. And it's the city streets of Los Angeles, um, you know, where all the people are. So it's, and what the church does, and this is the best kind of function, um, every, it, it creates an, a sense that we're all in this together. And I've never seen a, um, a gathering in there and they have all kinds of, you know, they have a weekly celebration as well, but they have, you know, on certain Sundays, all the Filipinos come and on certain Sundays, all the Nigerians come and all, you know, and um, everybody owns it. It's a space you own. And people, especially around Guadalupe, they go down and they walk onto the, what is the, the place where the presider sits and where the altar is. And there's this amazing, you know, kind of contemporary figure and they kiss the statues and they come onto, they bring, you know, they, they it, it just invites you. I think it's an amazing space. 
So I really like that one. Um, and I know it's not, there are a few people who, it doesn't fit their Gothic expectations, but I, I have seen people, the way that liturgy can happen in that space, um, it really facilitates um, and, 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 you know, it's just, it, 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 it allows you to be, to be the body of Christ right there. Yeah. yeah that's excellent. Even, um, I think like a lot of more traditional people who choose their ossified particular tradition and say that's the way it's done. I think they would be probably assume that this is some sort of, um, fall from pristine, a uh, architecture or thing but i don't think that's justified in line with what you're saying about the, the diversity and how the spirit moves throughout different countries through different eras and everything and also even biblically as you describe it there it sounds to me that that's the the gospel incarnating in a particular community in a particular um, building and everything even the the city sounds like the revelation of the new city the new jerusalem the uh, new heavens and the new earth and this is all being manifest in the art which is a good thing i think <laughs> it's just yeah, right no. yeah and i mean i love gothic cathedrals you know I, Me too. I, I think beautiful but i also love this other church it really and, and you know sometimes the some communities, you know, don't have a choice. They just have this sort of functional little barn that, you know, is what they can have. And it then what is important is the gathered community, you know, but it, it's, it's lovely to be able to be in spaces that are intentionally um, built for beauty. Yeah. Yeah, wonderful. And um, can we move on next to the book about the Sacred Heart or do you oh, have yeah. time? To with that? Okay, perfect. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, again, that was another one of those kind of uh, questions that I had in my um, <laughs> my mind um, about, you know, I didn't grow up in a Catholic environment, and yet all these retreat houses and these churches and, you know, statues all over, you know, what 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 is this? And so I began a, a, many years ago now, but a long year study of the history of the Sacred Heart. And it connects too with my more academic study because part of that tradition um, is associated with St. Margaret Mary Alacoque, who was a visitation nun. So she was a later generation of the Salesian tradition and, and a kind of a different uh, thing. But um, the Sacred Heart, it, it was my way of trying to move into what this was, why, why, why is this statue, you know, in this picture of you know, Jesus with his heart uh, exposed, why was this, um, you know, all over the place? And it had lost some of its resonance. In other words, I never grew up with a devotion to the Sacred Heart. I never, the places that I worship didn't have a, you know, First Fridays or, a, you know, any of those kind of things. And so I began to, to study it. I was very interested in it. its roots are very old. Um, and it goes back to the earliest readings of the church fathers about, you know, um, reading allegorically, the, especially the, the Gospel of John, about, you know, the piercing of the side and the blood and water coming out and reading that as a as a sign of the Eucharist and the baptism. And, um, you know, that the 
the allegory there is that this is the offering of God for the world, you know. Um, and then gradually that becomes more devotional in the Western world in the Middle Ages. And so you have uh, traditions of people um, seeing the heart and, and praying with the wounds of both the wounds of, you know, the hands and, and feet and side, particularly the side wound, as, a, as an entryway into the mystery of God's own heart and the, the mystery of love that is there. Um, again, love not just as affect or emotion or you know some something like that, but love is the generative force that overcomes death and you know creates everything. Um, and so that becomes a devotional practice. Eventually, it becomes um, you know more and more identified with um, you know the particularly the Eucharist and the sense of um, in the 13th century, you begin to get someone like um, Gertrude the Great having visions of Jesus revealing that 13th century is when the Eucharistic theology begins to really be um, solidified in the Western church. And um, you have her, Jesus revealing his Eucharistic heart and how his presence is, is there in the Eucharist. And, and, and so it becomes by the time you get to Margaret Mary in the late 17th century, um, she taps into something that's old, but then she begins, she has a series of revelations in which um, she wants to have the heart honored. And that gradually gets accepted and um, becomes part of a, a kind of more codified liturgical practices. Um, First Fridays, um, you know, the octave or the feast of the sacred heart after the, the week after the um, uh, Corpus Christi or body of Christ. And um, the heart of Mary, not through Margaret Mary, but through John Hughes, who was at the same period of time, um, becomes very important uh, in the early modern Catholic world. That somehow, again, uh, Francis de Sales says this is, um, this is uh, powerful stuff. This is the interiority of Mary, is the interiority of the human person who has a transformed heart, whose heart was close to the heart of Christ from the very time he was in the womb with her to the time that he died on the cross and that her heart is the closest human heart and beats most in union with him. And, and so it's a whole wonderful tradition that, um, unfolded, I was glad to be able to, um, you know, uh, spend time with and to, to plumb more deeply. Yeah, wonderful. I think um, that's very important that you show that it is an outgrowth and um, unfolding from the scriptures and the patristic era even itself, because I think a lot of Orthodox nowadays think that such traditions of, that have developed in the West are somehow errant and um, again, this fall from some sort of imagined pristine era of the early undivided church, which I think is more ideological than theological. And um, I've come to believe over time that there's things like the Sacred Heart, the Rosary, the role of the imagination um, in ways like such as we mentioned and more, they emphasize different strands that are genuinely Christian and not pagan, like some suggest, or 
so this kind of fall from some pristine spirituality. So I think I've seen this in um, the, the Eastern Catholic churches too, which people don't like, <laughs> but they, there's that balance of the universality and the particularity of the church. So um, I end up going to a Malkite Catholic, Great Catholic Church, and I think it's important to hold all of these different emphases. And I think that your work is important in um, showing that and cutting beyond the ideology. And um, Bernard McGinn, the wonderful scholar in mysticism as well, I think he demonstrates this case of emphasis and a both and from east to west and north to south and everything else. Does that make sense? <laughs> it, does. it does. Yeah. And I mean, the, the you know, I mean, all the schisms that we have in the, in the church, east-west schism, the Protestant Catholic schisms, the many, many other schisms <laughs> and, and splinterings that, that have happened over time, um, I guess my instinct is, is, you know, that there's a wisdom in all of these. And even though I stand in one of them, and it's the more comfortable one, or it's the one where I you know, kind of try to live out of that one, that all of them have deep um, insights from the gospel insights, basically, and how you play that out in different cultural times and different settings and different languages and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, and, and the, the question of, you know, where authority lies, the, the Western Catholic Church does assume that the spirit continues to move in the body, the mystical body of the church to flesh out as it were, the, um, you know, the, the creedal statements to flesh out what the gospel actually means. So, you know, if you, if you have a, a, an idea that, you know, it, 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 it stops at some point, then it's going to, everything's gonna seem errant. Um, that's also true, you know, the Protestant, uh, many of the magisterial Protestant communities, um, you know, assumed that you had to go back to the apostolic period, and that was the only authority and everything else was an accretion. Well, yeah, you, you could say there are things that are accretions, but there was also the living, um, breathing, contemplative, um, communal thing that was going on. I think a lot of what these devotions point to is not some sort of somebody made this up as much as a, the community prayed this into being. Um, and that that's, that, that it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a result of the communal prayer. I mean, just the way that, you know, the Roman liturgy right now, you know, all the antiphons and how the scriptures are put together and stuff, that's a combination, that's a, uh, a result of centuries of people praying the scriptures and how they connect with one another. You know, how does the Song of Songs connect with the Gospel of John? And how does the, this passage from um, Paul, you know, connect with this, you know, something from Matthew? And so the way that we have um, prayed this stuff is a result of a long communal kind of process, which is not just somebody made it up, I think. Yeah, most important. Thank you so much, Wendy. And thank you so much for speaking me, with me today. And um, I just want to ask you before we go, is there anything else that you're working on at the moment or that you still feel the passion to get involved with in the future? 
Um, well, I'm actually teaching at the moment, so um, I'm pretty much paying attention to that. I have, I have a something I've been working on for a long time um, out of the Salesian tradition about Francis de Sales's use of the Gospel of John, which is not in any shape that I'm comfortable with at this point, um, but that that sits on my you know on my computer waiting for me to return to it. Um, at the moment, I'm a little in a wintering season with the pandemic. I am, uh, I'm, I'm continuing to teach. I'm continuing to, um, there's small things that I'm asked to do, little pieces I've asked to do, but um, that's an unfinished piece. I guess I'm waiting for further inspiration. <laughs> God willing, it'll come to you. And um, thank you for your labors of love so far anyway, Wendy. <laughs> God bless you. Well, thank you. I appreciate the the time and the questions and uh, and your own sharing of the way you put this together. It's very edifying. Thank you, Andy.